You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Batteries store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Friday. I tell you what, sitting in a cubicle for your job, I don't know how some people can do it. Uh, I am... I love my job. I love the people that I work with, but sitting in that chair in that cubicle is some, some days like torture. I don't know. I don't know. I just, uh, anyway, it's Friday and that means two days of non cubicle life. And, uh, I'm thankful to have the job, but I'm also thankful for my weekends and, uh, it's going to be cold this weekend here in Iowa. And uh, there's going to be a lot of deer getting killed again. This is the opener of the second season shotgun here in Iowa. And this is the season where the shotgun hunters who drive, uh, they drive the uh, my main farm. And that's when a lot of deer get killed. Um, and uh, so it's always interesting to see what makes it through. Uh, into late season Uh, typically I don't even put trail cameras up because in the past uh, after second shotgun season the farm is just desolate of deer you know maybe one or two deer uh, call it home and and that's typically why I don't find any sheds on uh, portions of that property but uh, you know it is what it is they have permission to be there just like I have permission to be there and uh that's uh, some of the stuff we as hunters deal with on a yearly basis. But today's podcast is not about me. Today's podcast is about Ted Bright. 
and Ted's been on the podcast before. Uh, we talked about an elk, elk hunt that he uh, took a couple years ago that was just an epic elk hunt. And uh, this year, he uh, or this episode, he ends up talking about a canoe trip that he takes on a yearly basis. Uh, this year wasn't a a canoe wasn't involved, but most years a canoe is involved. And why I think this story is so cool is because it is a public land hunt where he uses a canoe and camping equipment to access portions of this property. And instead of parking and walking in and out every day, he takes a canoe and camps in the state park. Um, Not necessarily in it. There's other details that you will hear on this podcast, but it's just an example of thinking outside of the box when it comes to hunting and changing up your game and your strategy just a little bit to become successful. So that is what today's podcast is about. It's just uh, a really cool story, and uh, I had a lot of fun just interviewing it because I love those unique hunts, those different hunts, those those hunts that guys do um, went on a whim. And uh, it, it was a whim, but now it's tradition. So uh, you're going to love it. But with Christmas approaching, right, all this, you know, we all want this hunting gear. Don't be afraid to tell your significant other, your mom, your dad, your husband, your lover, or whoever's buying Christmas gifts for you about all of the discounts that the Nine Finger Chronicles offers. Um, we have a discount for 20% off from Wasp Archery. That discount code is Nine Fingers, number nine, followed by the word fingers. We have $75 off of all orders over $400. Uh, that's for Ozonics. That discount code is Nine Fingers17. Uh, Deer Lab, if you go to DeerLab.com slash Nine Fingers, you will and sign up, you can receive a free 30-day trial period. Um, Exodus Trail Cameras, you you guys know that one. Uh, Go to ExodusOutdoorGear.com, and when you guys uh, purchase an Exodus, you can receive $20 off of your purchase, and uh, that discount code is 9fingers as well. Lone Wolf, the discount code is 9FC50. Uh, when you're buying a, a tree stand online. And then we have Gearhead Ripcord and Bighorn Outfitters. Um, I'm sure if you called them up and said, or maybe not Bighorn Outfitters, but Gearhead and Ripcord, if you uh, call them up and said, Nine Fingers sent me, do you got a discount for me? They may, they may not, but uh, I'd give it a try. So that, uh, that, that Lone Wolf discount, by the way, that gets you $50 off all orders over $200 and uh, a lot of guys have been taking advantage of that and uh, it's a no-brainer in my book so that's the discount codes that we have here ramping up to Christmas please tell your friends or family whoever's buying Christmas gifts about those and, and you guys should take advantage of them as well also be sure to tune into the podcast on Monday it's the follow-up to the Q&A and I share the story about how I lost my finger. Uh, and I am going to be doing a giveaway on uh, on that particular episode. So please keep an eye out for that. I will be giving away a pack of wasp broadheads. 
I'm going to be giving away a Lone Wolf tree stand, and I'm going to be giving away a Exodus trail camera. Uh, for starters, I might be giving away more stuff, but those three things I'm going to be giving away. I don't know if I'm going to make it three individual winners or one mega winner. So, uh, so keep an eye out on how to win that, or keep an ear out, I should say, on how to win that. And that's going to be given out on Monday. Instructions on how to win are going to be given out on Monday when I uh, end up launching the <laughs> the How I Lost My Finger podcast. So that's coming down the pipe. I've been talking too long as usual. Let's get into today's. I don't even want. I don't even know what to call it. Hunting Outside of the Box podcast with Ted Bright. All right, on the phone with me, we have another returning guest. Uh, the last time we spoke with this guest, we were talking about uh, an elk hunt, an epic elk hunt that he went on uh, out west on uh, several years ago. And now we are back again with Mr. Ted Bright. How are you doing today, Ted? I'm great. How are you, Dan? I'm doing good, man. So in the last podcast, we talked just briefly you just mentioned this this annual canoe trip that you take where you you get in a canoe and you go canoeing down this river you set up tents and you hunt this ground and that's what this entire podcast is going to be about today and the reason I want to talk about this podcast in in detail is because it is something that you do that is way outside of the box as opposed to strategy for hunting whitetails. And I think that ideas and scenarios like this, everybody needs to get outside of their comfort zone at certain points because you never know what you're going to find. So that's what today's podcast is about. Um, and before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, Ted, just straight up, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Life is good. It's uh, it's been a great hunting season. Uh, started off kind of slow, uh, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a great year. The the rut in Missouri was a it was a little bit late, uh, hence the late start. But you know, as with anything, you know the the uh, the success of the hunts are just the cherry on top. And uh, in fact, I was actually able to experience a pretty cool couple of events that are outside of you know the the harvest and the uh, even the the you know the the sights and the sounds of the whitetails and i was able to get about 10 yards away from a pair of bobcats oh, nice. in early november and i actually had a, a black bear encounter uh it was a few yards away from me it was still in the dark it was right underneath my tree stand and i didn't really know what it was uh but then i saw on my way out that <laughs> Later that morning, after I climbed down, I saw a, uh, a a bear scratch in the in the leaves where he was digging around in acorns, and it was just blatantly obvious that that's that's what it was. So, in all, it, it was it's been a great season so far, and yeah, life is good. Cool, man. So, is that the and this was in Missouri where you had this bear encounter? Yes, yes. Oh, okay, uh, we are in uh, South Central Missouri in Crawford County. Okay, so is that a rare occurrence, or are there known bears in that area? Pretty rare occurrence. You know, it happens every once in a while. The last confirmed sighting that I'm aware of was uh, probably about five years ago. 
And then, uh, you know, since I saw or had, I didn't necessarily see it, but since I had that encounter a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's been a couple more of confirmed sightings. Gotcha, man. That's crazy. Yeah. In Iowa, we get about one or two a year in the Northern counties and it comes on the news because up in the Northern counties, it's really flat. So when something like that shows up, it's going to be seen, you know, a black dot running through the fields, basically. And it's always on the news like, hey, oh, man, there's a bear up here. And then they report on it for about two weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool, man. I, it, I'm definitely a huge fan of just Mother Nature in general. And it's always cool when you can have something uh, happen. Uh, like a bear encounter or seeing bobcats. Actually, this year, I saw a bird that I had never seen before uh, in my entire life uh, sitting in the tree stand. And um, I went to go look it up, and it was it was about the size of a fist, almost round. It was blue and gray and had like a like a bright red beak on it. And so I had to go uh, look at it, and it's typical to the area i forget what the name of it was but it was typical to this area i just had never seen one uh before so seeing something like that i guess is is always cool especially when you're waiting uh a lot like uh, us bow hunters do yeah definitely it's, it's always neat to see those those new things that pop up or just the interesting the rare uh whatever it is just being a part of nature and it it's i like to think of it like us bow hunters uh, just get closer to that than the average Joe that's on a nature walk or the average rifle hunter or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And now I want to talk about this, this, this trip that you've taken for the last eight years now. And a canoe typically plays a big part in this, uh, in the strategy of this hunt. So first off, why don't you tell us about how this hunt typically on a standard year plays out and then go into a little bit of detail about why you started going on this trip and kind of how it came to be, what kind of research you did and, and why you thought that a canoe is the best option. Well, yeah, you're right. It was, it started about eight years ago and canoeing was the best option because, you know, there's a decent sized river that goes through the, uh, through the state land of, of which we hunted. And it's also, you know, reasonably close to where I live. Uh, so it made sense, you know, we would, uh, try to get in a trip up North on state public land and then, you know, in Northern Missouri, and then also do the local, um, and then, and then it evolved into where we were primarily just do the local trip. And, you know, you can't make a, uh, three or four or even a week, uh, three or four day or a week long trip, uh, you know, without ha hauling enough gear to where you need a canoe. And also, you know, when you're, when you're on that state public land, you have to, you have to camp on the, the common flow area of the river. So it just makes sense. Uh, so we would, we would float in about two miles in camp and then, uh, you know, finish the float out at the end of the hunt. And it's about a six mile float the rest of the way out. Uh, so that's the typical year this year, you know, because of, uh, the new job and, and everything and extenuating circumstances, uh, 
you know, we were only able to, it was only my son and I, my 14 year old son at the time, he, he just turned 15 the other day. Uh, we were only able to go from Friday until Sunday. So we actually mountain biked in okay. mountain bike with all our gear and everything and just did a minimalist camping trip. Right. So I got a lot of questions. Um, my first is what is the, this is state ground, so it's public, right? So why do you choose to get into a canoe and go through this piece of property as opposed to accessing it from the outsides moving in? So, you know, A, you can fit a lot more gear in a canoe. And B, it's a two to two and a half mile walk or bike ride in from the parking lot. Okay. So, so in, it's, it's a long haul. Right, right. So in order to do, in order to camp on, in this property, you have to camp within what I'm guessing is the high water boundary of, of this river. So you have to camp on a, on like a sandbar or something because you can't actually camp outside of the river on this state ground. Exactly. Okay. All right, cool. So when you were thinking about this eight years ago, um, you know, you had never done this before. Did you piggyback on this trip with a friend or is this something that you had this idea and it's like, wait a second. If I, if I, you know, I found a loophole, I can camp inside the river on these sandbars. I can do all these things and the access is going to be better for me. It, you know, was that, I mean, how did, how did that whole, all that thought process work? Cause that's what really intrigues me of why you decided to kind of go outside the box and get into a canoe and go down this river. Well, first of all, I would just like to say you are damn good at what you do because you ask the right questions. And in order to be good at what you do, that's what it takes. <laughs> and it, it, this is not circumstantial. And for the listeners that he has no, Dan has no idea what I'm about to tell him, but uh, Dan, you, you just struck a gold mine with, uh, with that question because ironically, when when we first planned this trip, we're just a bunch of uh, upper 20-year-old buddies, you know, and had no idea what we were doing. And we just decided, you know, well, shoot, let's just go. We'll just canoe in and camp. You know, it was almost like a dumbstruck luck thing. Yeah. So we got in there and we went the week between Christmas and New Year's. And we went in there the day after Christmas. And uh, Dan, I have never been in such a survival situation in my life as <laughs> we found ourselves in. I, I'm not kidding. It was, uh, you know, we were basically camping on, on an island type of uh, scenario. It's a, it's a larger island, but it's not, it's not even necessarily an island. It's only an island when the river rises and there's like a back slough that will fill up when the river rises and it makes it more of an island. Right. Right. So this cold front came through and with it came like seven inches of rain. Oh, it was boy. an ungodly amount of rain in a very short amount of time. And the river flooded and we came back after our hunt. Our tent was in the river. Our sleeping bags were in the river. The temperature had dropped 30 degrees. It was now snowing. And we literally spent a, a night on an ever shrinking Island, watching the water level rise and then finally crest. And, you know, basically 
we were down to our only option was if our land ran out, we were going to have to tie our canoes to a tree and just take shelter in the canoes and, and, and keep rising up the tree if we had to until the water subsided. Wow. Wow. That was our first experience on this trip. <laughs> so, so you and a bunch of buddies said, Hey, let's get it into a canoe. Um, did any, did any type of hunting take place on that trip? Well, it was, it was, it was the first day that we were there. Okay. Uh, so we went and, you know, we scouted around and we hung our stands and we hunted that evening and I'll never forget being in my tree stand and the, those 30 mile an hour winds, you know, shifted from the South to the Northwest. And, uh, that tree was, I mean, it was whipping back and forth and nobody, it was so extreme that nobody even hunted until dark. We were all, we all got back to camp at dark and we were all like, Holy cow, that was incredible. And sure enough, when we got back, it was a good thing we didn't say till dark because our, like I said, our tents were in the, literally our tent was in the river and it had all of our sleeping bags in it and everything. And but it, that, but it, it was a long night. Everything was wet. Oh, everything. Okay. Nothing so, got spared. Okay. So everything was wet uh, on that, on that first trip. And so how, how many days was this that you had planned? We, I, we, I, I don't remember exactly how many days we had planned, but we left that next day. Right. And okay. we, we, so we floated out in, uh, uh, the six mile float in like stage three floodwaters. And it was our, it was our record time in getting out on that float. <laughs> uh, we made it out in, in such quick time. And the, you know, another ironic twist of the story is, the next day, you know how it goes after those cold fronts. It's typically a high pressure, yeah. beautiful sunshine. It was crisp and cold, but it was just the most beautiful day. But that river was just raging, and yeah. it, it was an exciting float out. That's for sure. Right. So, quick question: Did any of you guys hunt that state ground from the road in, or anything like that, before you decided? Hey man, maybe we'll get a better opportunity at a deer if we, you know, access it with a canoe. Or was this just a a, a harebrained idea that one of you guys that popped into one of your guys' head? A harebrained idea, basically. Okay. So, so you guys had never hunted that property before. You know, I I wouldn't say that. I I rabbit hunted it during high school. Uh, maybe even bow hunted it a time or two, but nothing extensive at all. Okay. Okay. So you decided, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take this canoe, right? Year one was a bust. It sounds like you about, you about, you know, went all the way down to Louisiana and the, (laughs) and then year two, like typically if, you know, shit like that happens, you guys are like, Oh, I ain't doing that again. You know, like, but you did do it again. Why did you guys decide to go back and do this? this trip again because it was exciting exciting it was exciting uh yeah and and it's you know as far as you know in our area it doesn't get much more remote than this uh and it was just it's it's just a beautiful area the the river is also good fishing so uh you know although we hadn't hunted that land before i have fished that river you know basically since i was in high school and uh, you know so i know know the area well Right. Okay. So the second year happened 
And, I mean, did you guys have decent weather the second year that allowed you to get out and do some hunting? Well, you know, we have been down so many times, I don't specifically recall the second year, but I can tell you there's been, we used to always go the week between Christmas and New Year's. And, you know, late season hunting can be difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you're seeing deer the last, the first half hour and the last half hour, basically. Uh, So we had a lot of slow years and we had years where it did, you know, we're, we're camping out for, you know, three, four, five days and nights at a time. And it, the temperatures did not get above freezing. You know, we've had uh, extensive snow and everything. Um, so it's, it's always exciting. It's all, it's always been a great trip. You know how it goes as, as it, it has evolved. A lot of the buddies have dropped out. And then to this point, to this year, uh, you know, none of the buddies went and it was just my son and I, Yeah. and we actually moved the trip up uh, to where we went during rifle season and while the rest of Missouri was ravaged with the Orange Army, we, uh, you know, we basically had had the place for ourselves because it's archery only. Okay, so that that whole state ground is an archery only forest or, or hunting property. Correct. Okay. Does it get much pressure from the outside? Yes. Okay. Yes, there's it gets a lot of pressure. Okay, so there's there's somewhat of an advantage, right? If you guys are already in the center, waking up in the center of this of this giant forest, I mean, I just have a feeling that as people are coming in, it's pushing all the deer closer towards you, which theoretically, I'm assuming, is a bedding area, like all these bedding areas. Well, you know how it goes, Dan. It's not it's not as big as 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 what you think, and you know, even though we're in the center of it, the, the, the people, there's other people that bike in and there's people that will make the walk, you know, they're typically not going through the extreme measures we are where we're getting into our stands, you know, an hour before dark or, or an hour before light, I should say, or, uh, you know, camping out and having a little bit easier access, but there's still pressure, even in that center area, there still takes skill to find the areas that are overlooked. Right. Okay. So over the years you you've done this and I mean, have you, it's, it sounds to me like, yes, there's a little bit of an adventure scenario playing in there, but at the same time, if you're doing this for eight years in a row and you're, and you're not seeing deer, you're, you know, you're getting busted. It's just, it's just not working out. I don't see it continuing, but there has to be some something there that is working for you as well. So are, are you seeing from this canoe strategy, are you seeing good numbers of deer? Have you been successful over the years doing it this way? I, I have always seen good numbers of deer and I've uh, been able to harvest several does on that trip, pretty much a doe every year almost. Uh, but this is the first mature buck that I've taken and it, but that also coincides with my evolution as a hunter in the last few years, you know, I've really grown in that regard. And, uh, I mean, what you do and the whole podcast nation and, uh, you know, all, all of the information that's now available at our fingertips, it, it's incredible. And that has really helped my hunting out yeah. and it's changed the way I hunt. And that has led to more success 
than picking spots, I think. Right. Okay. So you what do you do you know from over the years where you're going to be camping or is this something that is tweaked every year? Like your your actual camping location on this river, does that change every year based off of last year's information or are you going back to the same spot every year? No, it, it definitely changes. There's, there's enough ground there that you can't, you know, camp in one spot and access all of it. Yeah. So like this year, for example, I, I had a week vacation that I took, um, I guess it would have been like the first full week in November. And I got up every morning at three o'clock in the morning and showered and drove down there and made the bike ride in and hunted all day, you know, hunted in the morning, scouted in the midday, hunted at night, and then I would bike out and drive home. Um, so I, you know, I, I kind of knew what was going on and I knew where they were. Although during that week, that was the slowest first week in November that I can remember. I didn't see a mature buck at all, but I, you know, I, I was seeing sign and, you know, it kind of told me, you know, where to, uh, where to camp. And then there, you know, subsequently, uh, the area to hunt after that, you know, and, and this year I've incorporated the saddle into, into the arsenal and I basically hunt out of a different tree nearly every hunt. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm able to move around and be very mobile. Right. Right. All right. So it changes. I mean, how many acres is this piece of ground that you hunt? 5,000. Okay. 5,000. Yeah. And when you think about it, 5,000, 5,000 acres. Um, it now, is it like a big square? Is it long and skinny along this river? Describe, describe this 5,000 acres. It's, it almost broken up into three chunks and half of the 5,000 acres, it really doesn't even come into the equation. So it's not as big as it sounds. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, when you also look at the fact that, all right, so we've eliminated the, uh, the, the far most chunk, which is about 2,500 acres. And then you're looking at 25 remaining uh, or 2,500 remaining. And then, you know, a few hundred around the parking lots and the easy access areas, you know, it's, it's, all, it's it just becomes like anywhere else where you identify the pressure, you're, you're scouting hunting pressure just as much as you're scouting, you know, uh, deer sign and fresh sign. And, you know, you, you kind you formulate your game plan around that. And it, and it has to be constantly evolving. You know, my son is always asking me, well, you know, where, where are we going to hunt on Saturday evening? Uh, well, you know, as of now, I would say this, but our MRI most recent intelligence is going to, you know, uh, it could possibly change to whatever, you know? Right. Right. Okay. Now backing up just a ways. How far, how many miles do you actually canoe in? I mean, do you, do you put in on a road? Do you have somebody drop you off? Do you, is it a, like a boat ramp and then you go in? How's that work? Uh, it's, it's a two mile float, give or take to, to the area of which we camp. And that can, you know, fluctuate a little bit, but give or take two miles. And then it's a six mile float out, give or take. Okay. And uh, there's, you know, public access points at both the put in and the takeout. And as long as you have two vehicles, you know, you don't really have to do anything except for, uh, you know, stage the gear and then, you know, drop, 
drive down and drop off a vehicle and drive up and get it. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, my, you know, uh, my wife or my daughter are more than willing to help, and they usually help us out in that regard to where we have a vehicle staged and ready at the takeout. Nice. Perfect. All right. So every year, it sounds to me like it's one of those situations where every year is just a little bit different, right? Um, every year is running like a run and gun type scenario. I mean, not necessarily every year in the past, but you've learned over the years that due to outside pressure coming in and you know, how the river changes based off water levels and that d- determines where you camp and what part of the, um, you know, what part of this ground you hunt. What are the deer doing in throughout the day or, you know, like a bed to feed, you know, describe what they're doing um, when you go in there and hunt? I mean, are you spooking deer when you when you're floating in? And you find these campsites. Are you ruining that area, or is it you know how far from your campsite are you? Uh, are are you hunting? Kind of walk us through that whole scenario. Okay, um, so you know during the two mile float in, you can certainly see deer, uh, but if you do, did happen to spook them, you would just be spooking them back to the area of which you're hunting, and it's uh, it's those deer are very used to seeing fishermen along that river. So they don't typically get spooked anyway. So okay. it's, it's, it's really a non-issue. Um, in fact, I would be very excited if I spooked a deer because then, you know, I would give, just give me an opportunity to, to see a deer. Hopefully it's a, a big buck. And then I would be able to, you know, try to formulate a game plan from that, just from the intelligence of seeing a, a, a buck in that area. Right. So once we get to camp, then, uh, you know, of course, weather situations and especially wind will dictate the route to the stand. But um, my son's stand, for example, was 100 yards from camp this year, <laughs> literally. Uh, so I got uh, I left on Friday late morning and I went down and I set up his stand and everything. And then uh, my daughter dropped him off after they got out of school on Friday. So he biked right to camp and then it had to be somewhat close. Uh, but it was a hundred yards from camp and he was able to climb right up in his tree as soon as he got to camp and, uh, you know, hunt Friday evening as well. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it, we kind of situated it to where, uh, well, first of all, we were very minimalist. You know, we had a, a small four man tent for our gear and we slept in hammocks and, you know, we always make sure we buy everything in olive drab color or, you know, brown green colors that way it doesn't stick out and you know it's just it's it's really a non-issue in fact um you know we were able to call in a buck that basically walked uh, 50 yards from our tent nice nice so you know sometimes uh, how do i put this sometimes when i have a continuous access route like i have a i have a piece of uh, property where i take this two track depending on the wind direction, I park at the top of this hill. I take the two track all the way down to the, the creek system. And if a deer sees me along that path, they, they spook and they blow out of there. However, if there's another wind direction that is more rare, meaning my access route is going to be different. I walk that different access route to the same stand 
and these deer look at me funny because they haven't seen me in that area before. Um, what are what's the deer what are what are the deer's reaction to you coming in from the river as opposed to coming you know like in like everybody else does? You know, I I think that you're you're right here that there is an inherent advantage in that because the deer are so used to just like in your scenario, they're so used to seeing fishermen along that river. It's it's a highly fished river. Okay. And they're just used to seeing people around the river and it's non threatening to them. Okay. Okay. But that said, you know, when I leave camp in the morning, I'm still very you know, as soon as you get away from that river, you lose that that safety zone. So what I always do is, you know, like for example, the morning that I killed this buck is I, uh, you know, I got up at, at just four o'clock in the morning, I think. And, you know, that's, that's pretty early considering I'm already very close. Uh, and I had to cross the river, you know, strip down and cross the river and, and then, you know, put some, put my pants back on and, uh, hike to my stand and, I weave my way through those low lying ditches and I know that there's deer all around me on both sides. And I just took it nice and easy and slow stayed in the low lying areas. If I heard something, I would freeze and just, and just wait, you know, a couple of minutes and, and then move on. Uh, and that has seemed to work well. Okay. So, I mean, through historic, you know, historically you've been there for, you know, a handful of years. Do you have a good idea uh, through historical intelligence what these deer are doing on a yearly basis? Or is it something that they're that's changing every year? Uh, You know, of course, it changes. It's all dictated upon food. And this year. So, you know, last year, the the acorn mass was a lot more robust in this area I, I i think i've heard like the hunting public and those guys talk like up in your area that you guys had a great acorn mass this year but we did not around here so the you know they were up in the ridges and the hardwoods uh you know in throughout the month of october but well i wouldn't even say throughout the whole month by by the end of october they were already on grass again and it's, you know, it, it, it takes a little bit to recognize that it takes a few times. Uh, but once you recognize it, then, then you're on to the scheme, you know, and, and you just piece it together. And a lot of times you can, you know, just by being observant on your way, just even driving to the, to your hunting spot, you know, I would notice deer on the side of the road, eating the more green grass that, that appears right on the side of the, on the shoulder of the road, because, you know, that typically is a, is it greener grass than the pasture that's off to the side? Uh, so, you know, I was able to recognize that they were on the greener grass as opposed to in the hardwoods. And I formulated my plan from that. Okay. Okay. Next question. How many deer are you seeing in the set? I mean, what's the quality of the bucks that are in this area? So, you know, I, would basically see at least a few does every every sit and like i said that first week in november i i hunted very hard morning and evening you know going all day uh but i i didn't see the numbers i typically do and i did not see a mature buck all week in fact it took me till thursday to even see a nice two and a half year old and i i came to full draw on i mean a nice eight pointer 
Um, but you know, I didn't want to shoot two and a half year old. As I told you back in, uh, July, my goal this year was a four and a half year old buck. And you know how it goes all that time in the woods and all that effort, you know, I was getting a little antsy and, uh, maybe even a little frustrated. And, uh, you know, my, I remember telling people, well, I, my standards are lower now. And I was anxious to, to get an arrow in something. And uh, so I came to full draw on him, but, you know, I'm glad that I passed, of course. And then uh, I did not see a mature buck until November the 17th of this year. I, I, I take that back. There might, there was possible encounter with a mature buck back in like the last day of September, I think. But outside of that, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty slim pickings for me this year. Okay. So when you saw this guy, obviously this year, you, uh, you got excited. Yeah, I was very excited. And it, you know how the, uh, the emotions of bow hunting can, can turn on a dime. And actually the the first night I was there. So I, you know, I went in on a Friday, I set up camp, I set up my son's stand and then I, I took out and I, and I went, you know, scouting around to, to find out where I was going to hang my stand of which I had an, uh, an idea. Yeah. But, you know, when I got there, I, I found my spot and everything. And, um, I got up in my tree and as soon as I got settled, I, I went ahead and rattled. And within 20 minutes, uh, a mature, a three and a half year old eight pointer came in and just the way he came in, uh, did not allow me a, a good shot. You know, I think I, uh, I, I believe you were just on a podcast talking about it. It sounded exactly the same as, uh, Oh, maybe it was Will Cornett. I'm not sure, but uh, regardless, he came into the 20 yards and just did not have a shot. He's looking around, uh, was calm, cool, collective, everything. And then, you know, once he got to 20 yards and he did not see anything around, I, he started to get a little bit antsy. He turned to leave and, you know, I tried to squeeze one into a lane that in, in hindsight, I wish I would not have. Uh, but I did, and I, I, I tried to squeeze one in there, and I hit to the front of his front shoulder as he was quartering away from me. So basically a flesh wound, but you know how it goes. You don't take that stuff lightly. It was not a good night's sleep that night, uh, even though I looked in afterwards and I was definitely able to piece it together. You just hate doing that. It's, it's, a, it's the, your, the worst scenario as a proud bow hunter. So there was no blood to follow or anything like that? No blood at all. I found a little bit of hair, and I found my arrow basically 180 degrees from the way I shot, which told me that basically the broadhead, you know, literally hit um, just, you know, the flesh uh, in front of the shoulder as he was quartering away from me, and it just turned and spun and landed there. Uh, there was a little bit of hair and absolutely no blood. I was able to follow his tracks for a while. I had good visual on the exact trail that he went and, you know, found absolutely nothing on the way out. Gotcha. Man, so, you know, sucks. again, the range of emotions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The range of emotions, right. I was all excited to go on the trip and everything, you know, and get down there and finally have an opportunity at a mature buck, although it really wasn't what I wanted, uh, you know, cause I was shooting for a four and a half year old, but I was, you know, anxious and ready and, uh, tried to make it happen and didn't and was cussing myself and, and you know how it goes. Yeah. We've all been there. That's right. Absolutely. So 
you end up missing this buck on a Friday, right? Um, and then when did you, this was a three day weekend that you had with your son. Let me back up even just a little bit further. This was your, this was your son's first trip, first experience at this, this, uh, this camp out hunting, right? No, actually he's been going since he was 11. Oh, okay. Uh, First year that he went, he was 11 years old and we went the week between Christmas and new year's and uh, it did get above freezing that year, but I don't think it got above 40 degrees that year. And, uh, he absolutely loved it. You know, I was a little concerned that he might be a little bit young and not, you know, maybe not enjoy it as much, but he absolutely loved it. And he has gone every year since then. Right. And then, uh, you know, this year was the, he, he, he saw a lot of action this year. It was really exciting. So, when he was 11 and went with you, was he just a spectator at that po- point or did he actually, was he actually hunting? No, he was hunting in a tree stand by himself. At 11? Yes. Oh, good. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, and then, so, I mean, he's been on this trip now for a handful of years, uh, is, and I, and I don't know because I'd, I've never had, you know, when I first started hunting, I would need help walking to, uh, you know, walking to my tree stands from an adult and, you know, I would stay there until they came and got me, you know, just that kind of thing, you know, is he like, all right, dad, see you later. And he takes care of himself now, or does he still need a little guidance from you? Uh, so when we started at, you know, he started bow hunting when he was 10 and he would just basically sit in a blind or something, you know, and I would do just that, you know, drop him off, pick him up. And then that first year that he went on this trip and he, you know, that was the first year of hunting out of a tree stand and everything. Uh, same situation though. I would drop him off, make sure he climbed up safely. And then I would come back, you know, he wasn't allowed to climb down until I got back. Uh, but fast forward to today, you know, he was 14 when we went on this trip a couple of weeks ago and he is completely self-sufficient, um, outside of hanging the tree stand. I, I help him hang the tree stand. Yeah. Um, but he's also using a climber now and he's sufficient in that he can do that himself. In fact, we have, we've teamed up a few times where he'll either be in his hang on tree stand that I help him hang or he'll climb up the, in his climber when he uses my lone wolf climber. Um, and then once he gets up in the tree, then I'll use my sticks and I will hang out above him in my saddle. And, and, you know, I've tried to, uh, call in a buck for him or rattle in a buck for him while hunting above him. And that's been really cool. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Man, and the a... saddle is absolutely perfect for that. Awesome. And that seems just like a cool father son trip, you know, like, what do you want to do? I want to go into the middle of nowhere and hunt deer. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? No, no. Now, bef- before we get into the actual day and the you know the story of the buck that you ended up killing, I know I'm bouncing all over the place for this story, but all these things just keep popping into my head. You know, I, I understand this year you took a bike down to the river, and then you had to camp along, you know, camp on one of these designated areas, or not necessarily designated area, but, you know, because you couldn't, actually camp on the state ground you had to camp in you know within this river area 
what kind of gear, you know, and I know you've mentioned a little bit, you know, you got your tent, your two, your two uh, hammocks uh, for you and your boy. But other than that, what kind of gear are you typically bringing for these, for these camping scenarios? Well, again, the saddle is perfect because it's, it's minimalist, you know, there's yeah. just not a whole lot of weight associated with it. And of course I've got my other hunting gear, you know, my sticks and of course my bow and my pack. And, uh, of course my, you know, my son and I each have our own hunting clothes in our scent lock bags. And then, you know, he's got his tree stand. Uh, then, you know, we bring, we each sleep in a hammock. We each have a, a, you know, a decent sleeping bag. We take a four man tent for our gear and, you know, to put our hunting stuff in and everything to stay dry. And then outside of that, I take a one burner little propane Coleman propane stove that just sits with one burner. Uh, we take a, a cast iron pan dinner already prepped. And of course you can't go on a camping trip at all without coffee and a percolator. <laughs> there you go. So what, what, <laughs> what are you, what kind of meals are you cooking at night or throughout the day? Uh, we just had venison roast and, and vegetables and we just ate that two nights. You know, it was simple. I was able to put it in one, you know, like the biggest Tupperware container you can think of. And we just warmed it up over the, uh, over the burner. And then I, you know, had, uh, lunch meat and cheese and, uh, you know, bread or wraps, whatever for our, our lunchtime snacks and then a handful of other snacks. And that was it. It was very minimalist. Yeah. So I understand that this this year was a short trip, but what is the longest amount of time that you stayed out there? I would say probably five nights. Okay, five nights, um, and obviously yeah. five days equals five more days of you know that many more days of food and gear. When you're on one of these longer trips, is it everything? All the food prepared beforehand, and then you just you warm it up and cook it in one of these pans. Uh, every night or, or how's that work? Yeah, typically. Yeah. And again, the, you know, you have to have the canoe to be able to get that much gear in right. there to stay, you know, three, four or five nights like that. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So now I want to kind of get into, um, you know, actually, wait a second this year. It seems like it was kind of nice, but what happens if it rains? Um, are you guys just chi- like in, in maybe a harder rain? Are you guys just chilling in the tent, chilling in your hammocks out of the, out of the rain? How, how do you handle, or how are you prepared for that? Well, it, and it, it did rain this year. Fortunately, it was right after we got the, our buck back to camp, but, uh, I don't care how you slice it or dice it. I don't care if you're hunting, fishing, anything, when you're camping and it and it rains, it sucks. Yeah, there's just no way around it. Yeah. Uh, th- this year, like I said, it worked out perfect because we had just got my buck back to camp. You know, dragged him back and everything. And uh, you know, I I was so excited I didn't necessarily sleep, but we just chilled out in our hammocks. My son took a nap. You know, it was after we had sat in the tent and had a nice warm lunch. And, you know, we just chilled out in the hammocks while it rained. And then as soon as it stopped raining at three o'clock, we got up and went to our stand and we had, you know, a very exciting night of, night of hunting after the cold front and the rain came through. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. Um, 
let's see, I'm trying to think of any other gear. So it's just a burner stove. You can't light like a, a campfire or anything like that, or maybe you wouldn't want to, uh, because you know, obviously the smoke and stuff, uh, um, any other piece of useful gear that, you know, if you, if I took it away from you, you'd be like, Oh, this sucks. The coffee percolator. The coffee. You know, it's just a necessity. You, you have to have it. And are, are you doing that every morning but before you get out to the, you know, while you're like, you, you make your coffee while you get dressed and then you have your coffee while you're there? Absolutely. In camp for sure. Uh, first thing I do, you know, you know, typically the last thing you do before going to bed is prepare the percolator. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, just to minimize how much water we have to bring in, we typically just use river water because you're boiling it anyway. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, we, uh, that's the very first thing I do in the morning is light the percolator. takes a few minutes. I've got that down to a science and man, it's the best tasting cup of coffee, uh, ever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to, to elaborate on your, on a previous point that you made though, when we eliminated campfires, from our trip, our deer sightings went up exponentially. Okay. it's a good point. Such a huge factor that that smell sticks on your skin, sticks in your hair. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It, it transfers from clothes, even that you're keeping in your scent lock bag. You know, we would always be very anal about that. As soon as we got back to camp, we would change, you know, into our camp clothes from our hunting clothes, but it did not matter when, you know, and, and I hate telling a, a 14 year old kid that we're, we can't have a campfire in camp, but the difference is so significant that, uh, yeah, I, I, there's no question about it. We're not having a campfire. Right. Okay. So what about running into other hunters? I mean, going in this deep and coming in through a canoe, are, are you ever running into other hunters out there? Yes, definitely. There, there's tree stands. Uh, I, I don't necessarily run into hunters that much because we enter so early and we, we stay till late and most people just don't do that from what I've found. Uh, but I see tree stands frequently and then, you know, I formulate game plans around that and around, you know, that they're typically going to have, uh, you know, a very patterned, approach to the stand you know uh, entryway and exit to and from the stand that you can work around yeah yeah i gotcha um all right so why don't you tell me about the morning you woke up and how that day played out uh for the the day you shot your buck from 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 the minute you woke up until the the time that you ended up putting hands on him Okay, so you know how it goes. Every minute we spend in stand, we're we are constantly wondering, you know, where should I set up next, or yeah. what could I have done differently. So I had spent already spent a tremendous amount of time in this area and bouncing around from spot to spot. And uh, so that morning, my plan was I knew that the movement that I, I wasn't going to get to. Uh, the edge of the food or even the, the corridor uh, from the food before the deer were going to be coming through there. So I knew I was going to have to get back in, in tight to bedding and 
that I was going to have to navigate my way through deer and there's just no way around it. So, you know, I got up again, super early four o'clock in the morning, which is early for being down there. You know, when, when I was hunting that week, the first week of November and I was leaving my house every day, you know, I would get up at between three and three thirty, depending on where I was hunting. So I still got up super early. I went through the routine, the coffee and everything, of course. And, you know, I had to cross the river. Uh, so I crossed the river and, you know, I, uh, took my time and I, I, I it was probably a half mile walk from camp to my stand. And it took me, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half. And I just walked slow. It was really windy that morning. So I didn't have a whole lot of noise to worry about, but I just took my time. It was, it was warm temperatures. Um, you know, I didn't want to get all hot and sweaty and I, you know, I knew that I was going to be in proximity of deer. So I just weaved my way through the low, the drainage ditches basically. So instead of a straight line to my stand, I weaved my way through there. Um, went way out of my way at times to, and, and it was a pain in the butt to walk in some of that terrain, but you know, I was very adamant about staying in the low lying areas minimizing noise, minimizing scent. And, uh, you know, I got to my stand. I was situated at least 45 minutes before it got daylight. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Or do you want me to just keep, yep. Just keep going. Yep. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. All right. So once it got light, uh, you know, I, I did, I didn't see anything for a while. And then around 7.30 or so, I, I rattled. And shortly after rattling, I, I saw, you know, I'm, when I'm in my saddle, I'm facing the tree. So behind me and to my left, I saw a spike. But he was, he was clearly running away from something. And he was not interested in coming to a rattle. So, you know, I, I, I definitely noticed that that he was not interested in coming in and that he looked like he had just been bullied is what I was thinking, you know? So you know, I kind of kept an eye from the direction he came, which would have been over my back right shoulder. And, I, you know, about 10 minutes later, sure enough, I heard something behind me into my right and I looked back and here came two does. And I, I just kept looking behind them and all I saw, I saw plain as day, you know, big old antlers coming through and, uh, so he came through, of course, right on the does trail, the two does passed by at about 25 yards, but it was to my right and it happened rather quickly. So my bow is to my left. Um, I'm strapped on and ready to go, but I would have to cross over my tether line, which, you know, is not really feasible without a lot of movement. And then it's, it's really difficult to shoot to your right. Um, so, you know, it was a precarious position and it was, unfolding quickly so he got to 25 yards and he stopped and i saw that this is you know clearly a big mature buck that i want to harvest right and as soon as i recognized that i don't even look at antlers anymore i i really had no idea how big he was i just saw it was a mature buck and i at that point i just strictly focus on the kill zone and so i uh i grunted at him and you know he just kept following the does and every, as he walked off and he was literally walking off because when I grunted, 
the does, they did not like that at all. The two does, they went from a walk to a trot and they were getting out of there. You know, they didn't want to have anything to do with the, with two bucks fighting. Right. So they train, uh, trotted off and he just kept on the same pace following him. But I grunted several times and Dan, every time I would grunt, he would twitch his tail. <laughs> so he didn't stop. He didn't look behind or anything like that, but I knew that it was resonating with him. I knew that it wasn't sitting well with him. And so when he walked out of, out of sight, you know, and like, you know, I'm the thought crossed my mind, this guy walked into my life and walked out maybe never to be seen again. Um, but as soon as he left my sight, I hung up my bow and I, uh, you know, I, I think I may have looked at my binoculars real quick just to make sure, but that didn't last long. And I, I, I used the black rack. I, and the reason why I use a black rack is because it folds up so nicely against your pack. Okay. You know, I don't carry in the like real antlers. is It's so cumbersome. But anyway, so I grabbed my black rack <laughs> and I don't think I touched these things together for more than a second. And he was running full bore. He was coming to whoop some ass, man. Yeah. And I, I barely got the black rack hung back up on my bag. I almost dropped him. I mean, it was like, frantic you know i'm like oh my gosh he was running in and i'm trying to hang these things up and get my bow and hook on you know and all this time he's still to my right which is a problem right so he he came then this at this point he's basically to my three o'clock and he stops at about 20 yards out and you know he but he's not uh he's not alert or alarmed or anything he's just aggressive right just aggressive and so I, in reading that body language, I thought that I could get away with sending a grunt to my left to get him to cross over to where I can get a shot. Because to my right, I still have to cross over my tether line, and it's, it's a challenge, right? Right. So I did that. Uh, he was 20 yards to my right at 3 o'clock. I grunted to my left, and sure enough, as soon as I grunted, he just started walking that way. So at that point, you know, I dropped my grunt tube. I clipped onto my bow. And I, but I'm still looking over my right shoulder. I had to wait because he was so close. I had to wait for him to get to these two trees that were at my five o'clock or so. And there were two big trees and it enabled me to get an opportunity to make my move to get ready to shoot him. And all of this would not have been possible if I was at 20 feet. There's no way. Yeah. Um, the does would have seen me and whatever, you know, I'm definitely up at 30 feet and that enabled this to happen. It brings on another challenge in a couple of minutes, but uh, 30 feet for sure. He's at my five o'clock. He, he walks behind these two large trees and I basically not in a slow fashion or anything. I whirled around very quickly, came to full draw and whirled around. And then the, at that point, as soon as he walked out behind those two big trees, I still had to wait because there was a lot of brush in the way. And right before he got to the next big tree, which would have been, you know, 180 degrees behind me, right at my six o'clock, he walked through my lane. I stopped him with a very aggressive, uh, if he would have got through that lane, it was thick again. So I had to be very aggressive with that. He stopped uh, on a dime and it was about an eight yard shot, almost straight down. And I drilled him just to my side, his right side of his body uh, of the spine and he, you know, he tore out 
and I, you know, I felt really good about it. I, I visually saw, and I'll never forget that, you know, that red open spot that you see, and I knew that it was right above the lungs. Yeah. Um, but I also knew that I was going diagonally through the chest cavity. So that can create a challenge, you know, mm-hmm. but I watched him, um, he did like a U-turn and came back the way he came from. Uh, but it looked good. You know, his reaction was good. I was very positive about the shot. And then, you know, after looking in binoculars and making sure I had last visual confirmation of his, uh, path and everything, I immediately, like I always do, I, I turned the binoculars to the shot area and I was able to see my arrows sticking in the ground. Uh, so I knew I got to pass through. So, you know, again, the range of emotions of a bow hunter, right? Just the hours before I was still down from the night before and the bad shot and the, you know, the poor shot selection, I should say. And, uh, and then, you know, I go to ultimate excitement and, you know, just ecstatic about what just happened and how it went down and everything. And then the range of emotions again, I climbed down. Uh, and I waited a little while, you know, I actually called a buddy of mine that was instrumental in my, uh, uh, saddle hunting adventure and everything, you know, and was able to talk to him, you know, and I just kind of burned a little bit of time. And ironically, uh, I was able to text all my buddies and everything and tell them I just smoked a giant, you know, and, uh, the only person basically that didn't know was my son TJ because he didn't have cell phone reception. So that was kind of ironic. Uh, but so after about 20 or 30 minutes, I climbed down and I went to my arrow and I was shocked because my arrow was, it was right there. It was stuck in the ground, but there was no blood at all. There was only guts. And, you know, I shoot the rage hypodermic. Uh, there was guts splattered and it was, you know, a, a, I guess what you would consider a horrific sight, but there was no blood. And I'm like, well, I, I knew what I saw. And that was the big red spot open on the top of his back, but that's not what was on the ground. So the range of emotions, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, here we are. I'm thinking that this is going to be an easy retrieval. You know, I can't wait to go get TJ and we're just going to go find this bug. We're going to track, you know, wide blood swaths on both sides. I got a passer. He's going to be bleeding all over the place. Well, I went to, you know, wow, we're going to have to wait. I'm, I must've shot him in the guts. Although I knew what I saw, the guts were there. So I had to defer to that. So I immediately realized that, all right, I'm going to have to walk all the way around this spot, go back to camp, you know, tell TJ about the situation, have lunch and give it hours before coming back. So that's what I set out to do. So I walked way around again, circuitously all the way around. When I got to the point where I turned to walk back to camp, I was like, holy cow, I didn't really even have to walk this far. You know, this is extreme. And then, <laughs> Dan, I've been probably 300 yards after that point when I turned to start heading towards camp. I'm walking back, and I'm just taking my time, and I'm looking, and I'm observing. There's tons of sign all over the place, more buck sign than I'd seen all year. And I look over, and 150 yards away, I saw a little gray something. I had no idea. Just enough to warrant a thought of pulling up the binoculars and sure enough I did. And sure enough, it, it looked like enough that I should probably explore that a little bit further, but it, it wasn't anything confirming, uh, but it just stuck out. 
and by the time and I walked a little bit closer, and then when I got to 100 yards away, I could see the edge of a rack sticking up, and I could see that it was a deer. And then by the time I got to 50 yards away, I could see that it was a really big buck. And so, I, you know, naturally, I knew it was mine. Um, so I walked over, and sure enough, you know, I, I videoed the walk-up and everything just so I could show TJ because I was so excited to share that moment with him. Uh, but anyway, so I, I videoed the walk-up and everything, and, uh, you know, of course, it's the, the biggest buck I've ever harvested. Uh, it was on public land. It was during rifle season. I was able to put my uh, my rifle tag on an archery kill, and it was my first year of saddle hunting. So, you know, it was just a, a whole culmination of emotions that made it such an awesome experience. And I still wanted to share that with my son, so I, I basically checked him out. I didn't gut him. I didn't do anything. I looked at him for about two minutes, and I hightailed it back to camp and told TJ. And then, uh, you know, we went back together and enjoyed all the festivities of that awesome man that sounds exciting that sounds really fun um now here come some more logistics into play right how many you're, you're how many miles from your truck you for this year you took a, a bike in and i'm looking at pictures now of like this bike with this child this younger child carrier that you've turned into a hunting gear carrier what were the logistics of you getting that buck from where he was at, where, where he died back to the truck? <laughs> so uh, great point that is again, worth uh, worthy of elaborating. Just the day before that I had taken my uh, uh, three and a half year old, or, you know, she's almost four now taking her to school via bike in that buggy. And, you know, she loves riding that thing, but, yeah, it doubles as a uh, as a deer hunting buggy for sure. And so to answer your question, from the spot of the kill, it's probably three and a half miles to the truck. And it was um, a mile to camp. And, you know, so it, it was a drag and, uh, you know, old fashioned style rope and, uh, you know, a young man and a, and a man dragging a deer. And we even had to cross the river with it, which was interesting. I, the first time I'd ever, uh, you know, crossed the river with a big old deer like that. So, uh, we got it back to camp and, you know, just, uh, hung it up and, you know, opened it up so that he could cool down quickly. And it was, you know, cold temperatures. So that was not a problem. And then, uh, you know, that night after hunting with TJ that night, we got back to camp and I, I loaded him up and everything and actually got up at, uh, three o'clock that next morning. And I biked him out to where I could get back to camp and hunt with TJ that morning before daylight. Wow. <laughs> that is freaking crazy. And, I'm looking at this picture yeah, now, was, and I'm just saying, just imagine if some maybe non-hunter would crump, come across it at dark, a guy pedaling a bike with a giant buck stuffed into this child carrier all just tied up like it, it looks it looks absurd but it 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 works yeah and it worked really well it was uh yeah very exciting man that's awesome so what did uh what did this buck end up scoring or what do you think his age was just so the the listeners have something to put in their mind 
Yeah, yeah, the five and a half year old buck, I believe. He he may have been six and a half, but I I I think he was five and a half years old. And you know, uh, I was able to have conversations and and check him out with uh, you know very knowledgeable people, including the taxidermist. And you know, pretty well consensus is that he was a five and a half year old buck. Uh, I would say he field dressed around two hundred pounds, and he scored one sixty four. I tell you what, dude, the the picture of you where I'm looking at a picture right now of the rope. He's hanging from a tree, but his butt's still on the ground, and you're standing behind him with one hand on his antler. That buck looks gigantic, like from an antler. Looks like an Iowa buck. Yeah, I know. Just like this giant rack and huge body uh, with you standing behind it. Um, Man, that's, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome, dude. Uh, congratulations again. And um, it just kind of goes to show you, like I said at the beginning of the show, just things things you can do outside of the box. Like I know I bet you there's a lot of hunters out there that they may bike in and, and hunt and bike out, but some of them don't stay uh, don't stay down there and do, do the whole camping thing. So that's uh, – I, I just look at that as something where your starting point every day is different from the guy who parks on the road. So uh, you, I would, I would assume you would have an advantage uh, at some point throughout, you know, from, from an access standpoint. So again, man, congratulations. And uh, are you and your boy looking forward to next year's adventure? Absolutely. Uh, trying to, figure out a way where we can make it down there for a night or two again, uh, you know, the week between Christmas and new year. So hopefully we can make that happen. And even since, uh, you know, since that late November trip, uh, we've gone down there a couple of times just for day hunts. Uh, you know, last weekend we went down there and, uh, did a bunch of scouting and everything and then did a hang and hunt and, uh, had a bunch of does around us. We didn't see any bucks, but, had a bunch of does and you know, my son was almost uh, about to seal the deal when uh, somebody got the, the nerves got a little bit uh, to him with thick does all around him, all within 20 yards. So it didn't happen, but uh, it is, it is a tremendous amount of fun and we love doing it. Uh, I'm very proud of his efforts in embracing extreme whitetail tactics. You know, not many uh, 14 or now 15 year olds are, are willing or able to do that and he does it does it with a smile and loves it awesome awesome well it sounds like you guys got a, a good tradition going and again congratulations and uh good luck next year thank you i appreciate it another week full of podcasts in the books huge shout out to ted for taking time to come on the podcast huge shout out to each and every one of the listeners thank you guys very much you know without you this isn't possible so thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast bighorn outfitters ripcord gearhead lone wolf exodus deer lab ozonics and wasp Thank you guys for making this possible uh, without, without your support, um, with your support, I should say, it makes it a lot easier to do this and very convincing to uh, my wife. So thank you guys for that. 
Guys, if you haven't already, go to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network and subscribe to this podcast, and you will get the Nine Finger Chronicles, the Land and Legacy, Transition Wild, DIY Sportsman. You're also going to be getting a ton of more information coming down the pipe. Uh, 2018 is going to be a big year, uh, bigger than uh, the launch of the Sportsman's Nation. I'm going to start refining it, adding podcasts for waterfowl and fishing and western uh, hunts and you know hopefully adding some video to it as well uh, maybe some web shows and whatnot so keep an eye out for that if you are interested in starting a podcast or have thought about starting a podcast for the uh, western uh, category or fishing or waterfowl hunting Hit me up on social media and uh, we can have a discussion because I'm always looking for new content. Uh, if you haven't already, visit the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on Facebook and Instagram. Also, be sure to visit Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook and Instagram uh, pages. Go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast from. Leave a review. And if you are going to be hunting this weekend, please... Be safe and wear your damn safety harness. Have a good weekend.